Today's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 4, verse 14 through 30. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your he hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was set, sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of God. Thanks, Caleb, for reading scripture for us. Uh, let's go to God in prayer again. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to hear his word. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do give you thanks for your word. We pray that you would help us to meditate, to think upon your truth. We pray that your word would be pressed upon our hearts and may your spirit open our eyes to see uh, the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. So Claire and I like watching uh, stuff on Netflix. So we recently watched the, I think the third season of the series The Crown. So some of you might, might know that the, the Crown is about the life and reign of Queen Elizabeth II. And the, the series begins, you know, season one begins with uh, when Elizabeth becomes queen, all the way back in 1952, at the tender age of 25. And, and this, this drama kind of just charts the life and times of Elizabeth, how she grows into her role as monarch. 
And I think one interesting thing about this series is that it portrays Elizabeth as not, necess- not necessarily wanting the crown. You know, she, she doesn't want to be queen. It's not something she wanted, but her family and her duty have thrust it upon her. And so she grows into the role over time. And so it's interesting you know, I mean, to read recently in the news that you have a member of the royal family who's kind of actually decided to forego his royal title. Right? I mean, some of you may know in the news, Prince Harry and Meghan, uh, they announced recently that they would drop their royal titles and duties and just spend half of their time living in Canada. And, you know, and experts on the, on the monarchy sort of say that the, the expectations of their royal identity were too much for them to bear. So they decided to put aside their royal identities and, and just live as, as much as they can, kind of ordinary citizens. You know, this question of royal identity is an interesting one. You know, some earthly rulers wear their crowns rather uneasily. Not everyone wants to be king, you know, not even for a day. Now, this question of royal identity, the uh, question of king, is also a key focus of uh, Luke's gospel. You know, so far, as, as we've gone through Luke's gospel, we've heard about how Jesus' birth fulfills the promises of, of the Old Testament, We've heard about how his family tree goes back all the way to David, to Abraham, and even all the way back to Adam, son of God. We've heard prophecies about Jesus, how he will redeem God's people. And then at Jesus' baptism, we we, we saw how, uh, we heard how God declared Jesus to be his beloved son. And then Jesus was sent out into the wilderness where he remained for 40 days and then he was obedient to God in the midst of temptation. You know, so far, we've heard many people say things about Jesus. We've heard God himself. We've heard uh, people prophesy about Jesus. But we haven't heard from Jesus himself. Expectations about who Jesus is, his identity are building up. Who who is he? What will he come to do? If he's a king, what kind of king is he? Will he live up to these expectations? All the expectations that we've heard of in the first three and a half chapters of Luke's gospel. You know, or will he kind of lay aside his royal identity because it's too much for him? So what kind of king will he be? In our passage, we get to hear from Jesus himself. Really, the first time in Luke's gospel, we hear significantly from Jesus himself. You know, we may have many questions or opinions concerning Jesus. And over the Chinese New Year holiday, you, you may encounter family and friends who have their own opinions and expectations about Jesus, or some of them may not have even heard about who Jesus is. So in this text, Jesus invites us to come and to listen to him, to hear what he has to say about himself and to know him for who he truly is, so that we can trust him and we can tell others of who he is as well. So just two two things from this text this morning as we work through this passage together. Number one, Jesus is the promised Christ who brings good news. Our passage begins with Jesus returning to Galilee, and he goes to the synagogues around Galilee and he teaches in the synagogues. And the synagogues are places where Jews would gather on the Sabbath to hear from the Word of God. 
right? So not, really, not the temple where sacrifices were offered, but a place where they could hear from God's word. And in fact, our, our gathering on Sundays kind of, it's, it's so, sort of modeled after uh, these synagogues, the way they gather and hear God's word. Like Jesus was a popular teacher, right? The, the text tells us that he was glor- being glorified by all in verse 15. And Luke tells us something else about Jesus. You know, verse 14, there's this important detail about Jesus that he went in the power of the Spirit. Verse 14. So Luke tells us that he is empowered by God's Spirit to carry out his ministry and mission. You know, Luke is giving us a, a picture of what it looks like to depend on God. You know, to depend on God means to be empowered by the Spirit of God. It means to rest in the Spirit's ministry in our lives. And that's, that was true for Jesus, relying on the Spirit. Luke has already mentioned the Holy Spirit in connection with Jesus quite a number of times. In, in Luke chapter 3, Luke tells us that Jesus will baptize with the Spirit. The Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism. Jesus is full of the Spirit, chapter 4, verse 1. And, and, and so the Spirit and Jesus are closely connected in, in Luke's gospel. And in a moment, we'll, we'll see why all this is significant. So just, just park that aside for now. So Jesus came to Nazareth, the town where he had been brought up. And Jesus was, Jesus was a faithful Jew. Right? He goes to the synagogue, as was his custom, on the Sabbath day. And Jesus has the opportunity to teach at the synagogue. And then Luke is the only gospel that tells us what Jesus taught at the synagogue. And so it's interesting to, to, to kind of think, oh, what text would Jesus choose if he has the opportunity to preach? Luke tells us that Jesus chose the first two verses of Isaiah 61 to be his sermon text. Right, so Jesus gets the scroll, so they, did, they didn't have books at that time, they had scrolls. So the, the scroll of Isaiah probably, probably, had, probably contained in a few scrolls. So the, the scroll of that portion of Isaiah was given to Jesus and then he unrolls it. And then back in the day, they had no chapter or verse divisions. So you can imagine you know, unrolling the scroll, finding the exact place. You would have to know your scriptures quite well to do that. So he unrolls the scroll, he finds the place, and then he reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. I think it's very appropriate that we come to this text on the first day of the Chinese, or the second day of the Chinese New Year. I mean, this text talks about the beginning of a new year, actually the year of the Lord's favour. Now, now, why did Jesus choose these verses from Isaiah? You know, why pick Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2? So whenever the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, it's helpful to go back to the Old Testament context to better understand why this quotation is used and why this quotation is so significant. Why is it so important that Jesus decides to preach a sermon from Isaiah 61? So these verses in Isaiah 61 are about the servant of the Lord. And if you're familiar with Isaiah, you know that there are other passages in Isaiah that talk about this servant of the Lord as well. For example, Isaiah 42 says, Behold my servant, 
whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. So God is speaking. He says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then six, verse 6 and 7 say, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. God is speaking to his servant. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 49, another passage that speaks of the servant, says in verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So what do these passages tell us about the servant? They tell us that God chose him, and God put his spirit on him so that the servant will be a light for the nations. This servant has a role to bring God's salvation to the end of the earth. And these passages tell us further that God is pleased with his servant. You remember what God says at Jesus' baptism? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, in whom my soul delights. Now, this servant will rule the nations with justice and righteousness. And this servant will bring sight to the blind. He'll, he'll set free the captives. So, so as, as we come to these passages in Isaiah, they, they are good news passages, right? They are gospel good news passages. These, these verses speak a message of comfort. These verses speak a message of hope. Uh, specifically, a message of comfort and hope to people who are in despair to people who are far from God, who people who feel like they have no future, who are tossed and turned, uh, you know, tossed about by, by the circumstances of life. I mean, some of us might be able to relate to these verses. You know, these verses are spoken to a people who have sinned against God. If the nation of Judah has been exiled from the promised land. And Isaiah speaks these words of comfort and hope to a nation separated from God, exiled from the land. And like Judah, our sin, our sin has also separated us from a holy God. And the big question that Judah had is the same question that we have today. You know, how can sinners like us return to God? How, how can we really be sure that we have comfort and hope? How, how can we be really sure that we have a future that we can bank our hopes on, that we can really bank our lives on? How can we be sure? You know, how can we be sure that we have a relationship with God who, who made us to know Him, to love Him? You know, how can a holy God Forgive sinners. Right, the Chinese New Year is a good time for reunion. You know, but, but this big reunion, right, how, how can we be reunited with God? I mean, this is the question that each of us must ask, just like Judah in the Old Testament. But the good news, Isaiah goes on to say in the rest of the servant passages, good news is that God will send his servant and his servant will come and bring light. How, how will the servant bring light? It says, Isaiah says, this servant will come 
to save by bearing the judgment against sin. Isaiah goes on to say in other passages that this servant will suffer and die for the ungodly so that sinners like us can be made right with God. Isaiah 50 says, I gave my back to those who strike. So the servant is speaking in the first person. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. So it's the language of humiliation. It's the language of suffering. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. This, this servant says that I am resolved to obey God even if it means being utterly disgraced and humiliated. And then this, Isaiah goes on to say this about the servant in Isaiah 53. You know, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So, so when Jesus reads Isaiah 61, he's reading in the context of all these other passages in Isaiah that speak about this servant. And then when Jesus gets to Isaiah, 50, Isaiah 61, this passage tells us more about the servant. Isaiah 61 tells us that the servant is God's anointed. You know, the, 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 the God has anointed him. God has chosen him. He has put his spirit upon him. You know, the, the word anointed is, is where we get the word Messiah, right? Uh, Messiah in Hebrew simply means anointed one. And that's where we get the word Christ as well, because Christ is Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah, right? So, so these Isaiah 61 tells us that this Jesus, he is God's anointed because God has put his spirit on him. And in the Old Testament, these are the characters that God would anoint, right? Prophets, priests, and kings. So when Jesus says, God has put his spirit on me, Jesus is saying, I am the anointed one. Following in the line of the prophets, priests, and kings, of the Old Testament. And he has a mission. This servant's mission is to preach good news, is to announce that the time of God's salvation has come. Right? So, so that's, that's Isaiah 61. That's, that's Jesus' sermon text, that, he, that the anointed one comes to preach good news. And then if you look at verse 20 of our passage, you know, this is one of the most dramatic verses of Scripture. You see how Luke builds up the suspense in verse 20? So Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, and there's a bit of a pregnant pause that happens in verse 20. Jesus rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, and then he sits down. So, so just, a, just a word of comment, the synagogue teachers would teach sitting down. So, so sitting down doesn't mean that the sermon is over. Sitting down means that he's getting ready to teach because they would stand up to read scripture and then they would sit down to teach. Uh, so, yeah, it'd be nice to sit down right now. I strained my back, by the way, so it's good to kind of sit down. <laughs> so he sits down and then he's getting ready to teach 
And so the eyes of all in the synagogue are then now looking at Jesus, right? Okay, what, what's he going to say? He's just read Isaiah 61, which is such a, 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 a kind of anticipatory kind of passage. So what's he going to say next? So all eyes were fixed on him. So Luke kind of builds a bit of suspense in verse 20. And then in verse 21, Jesus began to say to them, ah, Today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled, right? Perfect tense. This scripture has been fulfilled. Not will be fulfilled, but has been fulfilled. In your hearing, right? Friends, don't, don't diminish how significant these words are. You know, these, these are hugely important words in Luke's gospel. Right? You know, all these seven songs that we've heard from Isaiah... 40, you know, in 42, 49, 50, 53, 60, Isaiah 61, I mean, all these seven songs, Jesus is saying, today, now, in your hearing, all these promises have been fulfilled. Wow. You know, let's, let's take a moment to think, what, why is that significant? You know, what, what does Jesus mean when he says that? Like, these things have been fulfilled. A couple of things. One, Jesus is saying, God's servant has come. Right? The, the servant that Isaiah talked about in all these passages, the one who would be a light for the nations, the one who would suffer and die for the sake of God's people, for the sins of God's people, the one who would be anointed by God, who would bring sight to the blind, this one has come. God's servant has come. God has kept his word, he's kept his promise by sending his anointed one. So that's what, that's what Jesus means. And Jesus means this as well, that he is God's servant. You know, he is the one that Isaiah speaks of in all these passages. Jesus is saying, I'm the one. And, and now as you hear me speak, you are actually seeing the servant. All this has been fulfilled in your hearing. All this has been actually fulfilled in your seeing as well. He is God's servant. He is the Christ. He is the Spirit-anointed Messiah. He is the promised one who has come to save sinners. And the implication is that he will save sinners. How? By ultimately going to the cross. And that's why Jesus says, because he has come, because God's servant has come, the time of God's salvation has come as well. That's why Jesus says, that's why he quotes from Isaiah 61, right? That says, now, this is the year of the Lord's favour. This, this year of blessing, this year of salvation, this time of hope has come. You know, I, I think it's interesting to, if you look at Isaiah 61, I think the passage is out, up on the slide. Notice, not just what Jesus reads, but notice what he doesn't read. You notice what he doesn't read from Isaiah 61? What does he not read? Anyone? <laughs> you look, look, at, look at verse 2. You notice he, he stops in the first half of verse 2, right? You know, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61 and maybe the first, up to the first half of verse 2, you know, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then he sits down. Right? So his sermon text is actually Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 
2, A, right? First half of verse 2. Jesus doesn't read the second part of verse 2, which is what? And the day of vengeance of our God. You notice that's a very significant omission in Jesus' sermon. You know, why, why does he omit that part of the verse? Because Jesus is saying, and Jesus, obviously, he's not denying that God will come back to judge, so he's not denying that. But what Jesus is saying is that now is the time of salvation. There will be a time of vengeance from God. There will be a day of judgment. But the good news is that it's not yet. Friends, the good news is that it's not yet. That's why scripture says again and again, today, this, this period of time that we live in between the first and second coming of Jesus today, now, is the time of salvation. Now is the year of the Lord's favour, but this time will not last forever. This time will not last forever. There will be a reckoning. That there will be a day of vengeance, and the good news is that it's not yet. The good news is that now is the time of salvation. And Jesus stops short of talking about the day of vengeance because he knows God's time. You know, he knows that now, according to God's timetable, is the time of salvation. And he will come again to judge, but not yet. So while there is time, while it is today, Scripture says, what? Do not harden your hearts. While it is called today, do not harden your hearts because today will end and then will be the day of vengeance. But now is the year of the Lord's favour. So, so as Jesus says that, I, I think his point to the synagogue audience and his point to us as we listen to this text, as we, as we eavesdrop on his sermon, that the point to us is that while it is called today, Friends, let's not harden our hearts against Jesus. You know, he, he stands ready to receive us because today is the day of salvation and this day will end. So while we can, while we have opportunity to listen to Him, let's listen to Him. You know, listen to Him because He comes to proclaim good news to the poor. The text goes on to say, now poor isn't simply an economic status. You know, in the language of poverty in the Bible, to be poor is to be humble before God. You know, and this is, a, this is hugely encouraging because God says that the gospel is not for those who are self-sufficient. The gospel is not for those who have a lot. The gospel is not for those who are abundantly well-resourced. But the gospel is for those who acknowledge that they are poor. So God doesn't tell us, hey, go, go fix yourselves before you come. But God says, come as you are. Come in your poverty because the good news is for the poor. And, and God invites us in this day of salvation to come to Him with our brokenness and our sins. You know, it's, it's strange to talk about poverty on the second day of the Chinese year. <laughs> Maybe for those of us who are superstitious, this, this could feel, oh, this is kind of weird. You know, this is the time, right, in, in, in during the year where we exchange wishes for abundance, for prosperity, for wealth, 
for success. So the language of poverty kind of really jars with us, especially at this time of year. But friends, I, I think Luke's helping us to see that being rich in this world can be spiritually dangerous. Maybe something that we don't think about enough living in a place like Singapore. You know, being rich can often lull us into a false sense of security. I think we, we know this to be true. Isn't it true that trials often make us more dependent on God? I think I talk to many of us and oftentimes, the, the recurring theme for many of us is that when, when we have trouble, what do we do? We pray more. Why do we pray more? Because we, we recognize that we are dependent on someone. Because of my trouble, because of my struggle, I know I can't help myself. And, and so I need to seek help. I pray. Riches, on the other hand, can actually do the opposite. And friends, uh, when life is good, we may feel self-confident and self-sufficient. You know, and, and we live in an affluent and comfortable country. Right? Whatever you say about Singapore, it is a comfortable and affluent country. And it's a country where it is respectable to be rich. And I think this language of being poor reminds us of the spiritual dangers that abundance can pose to our souls. And it's a reminder of how we are utterly dependent on God, radically dependent on him. Remember what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea? You know, Revelation 3, verse 17, Jesus says to the church, You say, I am rich. You know, so the church saying, I am rich. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind. And naked. You know, there's a similarity in language between that verse and Isaiah 61. So the gospel is for the poor, for the blind, for the naked. Now, Jesus comes to free the captives and the oppressed. Right? What, what sort of freedom is Jesus talking about when he says, you know, I, I, give, I bring freedom? You know, is he thinking about some program of social, economic, political emancipation that will free the Jews? from Roman rule? Is he thinking about that kind of freedom? I don't think he is. Because remember, the context of Isaiah, these words are originally spoken to a people who are in exile. Why? Because of their sin. So the kind of freedom Jesus is thinking about is not political freedom from exile. But he's thinking about the biggest problem that these people face. And it's not social injustice. The biggest problem they face is not political oppression. The biggest problem they face is their own sin that's led them into exile, slavery, and oppression. Now, Jesus says in, in, in John chapter 8, right, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We, we sin because we are sinners. Right? You know, we're, we're sinners not because we're not we're sinners not because we sin, but we we, we sin because we are sinners. We, we're, we've been enslaved by sin. We're not free. And Jesus comes to free us from our slavery to sin and its consequence, death. Now, I know that this may not be how some of us understand freedom. You know, sometimes we think of freedom means I'm able to live life the way I want, free 
from any constraints. Maybe, maybe that's how we think about freedom. Right? I can do whatever I want. And if I can do whatever I want, whenever I please, however I please, that's freedom. But is that really freedom? Does freedom simply mean I can do whatever I want? Let me give you an illustration. See, I'm wearing a, I'm wearing a watch. You know, it, it's a mechanical watch, so if you look at the watch, there are all these gears and, and everything in the back of the watch. You know, am, am I free to, to kind of do whatever I want with the watch? I mean, you can say, yeah, you know, I, I can use this watch as a hammer. Am I free to use it as a hammer? Yeah, of course. You know, I can just like smash it on a nail and say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm using the watch as I desire. And I desire to use it as a hammer, so I will whack it down on a nail. Right? I'm free to use this as a doorstop, so I'll put it at the door to prevent the door from slamming. Right? That's how I'm free to use my watch, because it's my watch. <laughs> but friends, is, is this what freedom means? Right? I'm free to use it however I please. Is this good for the watch? Probably not. <laughs> So true freedom in Scripture is, is not doing whatever we want, but, but true freedom means living according to a purpose, living according to a design for which we are designed for, like, like this watch, right? To, to really enjoy this watch, what do you do? You use it to tell time. <laughs> you don't use it as a hammer, you don't use it as a doorstop, you use it to tell time, because that's what it was designed to do. In the same way, we experience true freedom and joy when we live according to our design, according to our purpose, what we were purposed for. And I'll put it to us that we have been made by God for His purposes. So friends, true freedom means being able to live according to what God has made us for. And what's God made us for is to know Him, is to love Him, to trust Him, to, to, to enjoy Him and, and to, to have Him as our satisfaction, as our true riches. Right? That's what it means to be truly free. You know, remember what Jesus says to us? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you Free. Free to live for God. And so Jesus comes to set us free to live for Him and to experience in Him true life, true joy. That's why it's good news, right? That's why Isaiah 61 is good news because Jesus is saying, I'm, set, I'm setting you free to do what you were supposed to do. And that's how you experience true life. The greatest blessing, friends, is for us to know Jesus. And he speaks as a prophet here in Luke 4, calling us to return to God. And he says to us, the light of God's salvation has dawned. So why continue in the darkness of our sin? Jesus is able to heal our blindness by shining the light of his grace and mercy into our lives. So he's the promised Christ. But he's also, second point, he's also the rejected servant who will suffer. You know, at first, the, the synagogue audience responds well to Jesus. 
You know, they, they like to hear good news of God's grace, right? You know, it's, it's, it's good, it's an it's a encouraging message. But, but then the enthusiasm doesn't last, right? They, they begin to question if Jesus is really who he says he is. You know, as they listen, they think, okay, wait a minute. Uh, wait, wait a second. Isn't this Joseph's boy? <laughs> you know, hey, we know Joe and Mary, right? I mean, they're, they're friends of ours. They, they've lived here for a long time. You know, they're our neighbors. Isn't this, his, isn't this their son? You know, we, we grew up with Jesus. He went to school with us. We taught him Sabbath school. You know, we, we, we fixed our furniture at his carpentry shop. Where, where on earth did he get all these things? You know, it's, why is he saying these things? How can he be who he says he is? How can he be the Christ? Right? So, so they're beginning to think and doubt who Jesus is. Now, Jesus, of course, being who he is, he, he knows what the crowd is thinking. And then, so he says to them, these rather intriguing words in verse 23. He says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Doctor, heal yourself, right? Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you, what, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. You know, what, what are they saying? What are they thinking? He's saying, hey, if, if, you are, if you are who you say you are, then, then why don't you do something for your hometown? Right? Physician, heal yourself. Right? Doctor, heal your own people. Right? If, if you are who you say you are, then do something here in Nazareth. Perform some sign or wonder, perform some miracle for our benefit, and then we will believe you. Since you are from Nazareth, why don't you do something good for us? Because we are your hometown boys and girls, right? We, we, we grew up with you. Do something good for us. If you are really the Christ, then show us and prove it. So, so that's, that's what they're thinking as they hear this message of Jesus. That's why Jesus says these words, right? No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Familiarity often breeds contempt. <laughs> Right? I, you know, I, I know this guy, you know, he, he was my neighbor, he went to school, why, why should I listen to him? He's just like me. And you know, don't miss the irony of this passage. Right? The, the irony here is that those who are near to Jesus, you know, seemingly near to Jesus right? because they're, they're his neighbors, those who are near to Jesus are actually far from him. You know, you know some of, sometimes I, I think, right, oh, if I lived in Jesus' time, surely I would believe in him. You know, if, if I saw him, if, if I interacted with him, surely I would believe in him. But actually, the testimony of Scripture seems to point in the opposite direction. Those who are seemingly nearest to Jesus seem to be the, are, are actually furthest from him. The, the people of Nazareth think that they know Jesus because he grew up there, but they don't know him at all. You know, let's, let's think about this for a moment. Who, who are the ones most likely to take Jesus for granted? It's actually not pagans. Right? It's, not, it's not unbelievers. Right? See, the ones who are most likely to take Jesus for granted is people like us. Regular churchgoers. Religious types, right? as, as the world would call us. Uh, insiders, right? because we, we, we kind of inside the circle of beliefs, so to speak. We are the ones who are most likely to take Jesus for granted because we, we seem to be nearest to him. But do we actually know him? 
right? We, we seem so near to Him, right? We, we're at church, we, maybe, maybe some of us read our Bibles really regularly, we, we pray, but do we really know Him? Do we actually know Him personally? Have we come to Him honestly with the burden of our sin and guilt? Now, have, we, have we come to Him and asked Him for mercy? Are we, are we following Him? Do we delight in Him? Do we desire Him? Do we desire to live for Him? Because we know that that's how we experience true freedom and joy and life. You know, the, the people of Nazareth assume God will bless them because they are insiders. You know, they think, oh yeah, surely we are the good guys. You know, we grew up with Him. Surely He will... Surely, if, if he's who he says he is, then he will bless us, right? because we, we grew up with him, we know him. But, but Jesus speaks these words, and he, he challenges their pride, he challenges their complacency, right? he, he challenges their self-confidence and their inflated sense of entitlement. And, and he cites two very uh, controversial examples from the Old Testament to make his point. Right? He talks about the, the prophets Elijah and Elisha, and he says there was a famine in Israel in the time of Elijah, and who did Elijah go to? Not an Israelite, but who did Elijah go to? He went to an outsider. Right? Elijah went to a widow who lived, who was from Sidon. And you know, if you know Sidon, Sidon is where Jezebel came from. So of all the widows that Elijah could go to, he went to a widow who came from Jezebel's hometown, a, a complete outsider. And who did Elisha go to? He didn't heal an Israelite leper. I mean, I'm sure there were many, many lepers in Israel at that time, but who did, who did Elisha heal? Of all people, he healed a Syrian, Naaman. And if, if you read just before that healing, Naaman had attacked Israel and had carried off some people from Israel into, captive, into captivity. So of all people, why heal a Syrian general who had just shown antagonism towards your own, your own country? You know, God's grace comes to the outsiders, friends. Not, not to those who think that they are insiders, but to the outsiders. And there's a religious, there's a self-righteous bent in every one of our hearts that thinks that we are more deserving of God's favor than others, that thinks that we are insiders. So we draw lines between others and us. We exclude people because they're not like us. You know, they come from different backgrounds. Their lives are too messy. They come from a different culture. They don't look and talk like us. So in this passage, Jesus challenges the, the small-mindedness and lack of love of the people of Nazareth. Why? Because his mission is to come and save people from all nations. But this isn't what the crowd wants to hear. Their acclaim changes to anger. They reject Jesus because he doesn't conform to their expectations of the Messiah. Now they want a Jewish Messiah who saves Israel from the Gentiles. They don't want a, a, a Messiah who comes and saves both Jews and Gentiles. Friends, we are to trust in Jesus for who He truly is and not reject Him simply because He doesn't match our ideas or expectations. 
that the problem isn't Jesus, the problem is our own prejudice. And we may want a Messiah who gives us what we want. We may want a Messiah who makes lives, e- who makes lives easier, who doesn't demand too much from us. We may want a Messiah who affirms what we think about ourselves. But the true Jesus isn't the Messiah we want. He is the Saviour we need. The crowd views Jesus as a false prophet and they try to kill him. And this foreshadows Jesus' ultimate rejection, suffering and death on the cross. As as we've read in Isaiah, he is the despised and rejected servant. He is a man of sorrows. He comes and he's rejected. He comes to save the poor, the afflicted and the oppressed. He identifies with us in our pain, our sorrow and suffering. He bears our griefs so that we can return to God. But it's not yet time for Jesus to die. He escapes the crowd because it is not up to man to determine the timing of his sacrificial death. No, this, this Christ, he will decide. He will determine when he lays down his life. And it's not yet time. But he will go to the cross, as we'll read later on in Luke's Gospel. Friends, this Messiah, Jesus, has laid down his life and he has taken it up again. This Messiah, this King, he doesn't wear his crown uneasily like earthly rulers, but he wears his crown. And he wears his crown because he has gone to the cross and he has been raised from the dead. And this Jesus is the servant King who fulfills fully the calling of his royal identity. He preaches good news to us, friends. So now is the day of salvation. This is the year of the Lord's favour. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from or where you've been. Jesus invites us to come to Him, to come to Him as we are, and to know Him for who He truly is. Let's pray together. Friends, we've just heard the good news of Jesus. Friends, He's come for us, for sinners like us. And in the quiet of our hearts now, we pray, I, I pray that we would reflect on where we stand with regards to God. Do we know His Son? Have we trusted in Him? Are we following Him because of who He really is? Precious Father, as we come to you now, Father, we come in the quiet of our hearts. Indeed, in your sight, nothing is hidden. You know us 
even better than we know ourselves. As we come to you, we pray that you would expose our hearts. We pray that we would that you would do a work of grace in us. We, we pray that as your word has said, that you will give sight to the blind. We pray that you would make us see. We pray that you help us to be honest about who we really are and help us to come to you because you have sent your son to proclaim good news to the poor. And we come to you in our spiritual poverty. We come to you empty-handed, knowing that we, there's nothing we have done and nothing that we are will ever commend ourselves to you. And so we come to you as we are. And Father, we pray for your grace. We pray that today we would draw near to you, that we would know you through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that we would come to this Messiah, this servant King whom you have sent. We pray that we would lean our whole life on Him and find in Him true freedom, true joy, true life. Help us, Father, we pray. Have mercy on us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.